welcome back to Below the Line. I'm your host, Hannah Ocher. Today's episode is the policy episode. So we're talking all poverty reduction policies implemented municipally, federally, and provincially. In October, I had the opportunity to interview Molly McCracken all about this. She is the director at the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives Manitoba office. She studied at the University of Winnipeg in women's studies and sociology and completed a master's in public policy and administration at Carleton University. She's worked inside government and in community-based organizations, and she's been with the CCPA for five years. Thank you so much for joining me today. I'm very excited about all that we have to discuss, which is a lot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I think first and foremost, I want to get into who does poverty well, because it seems like there's all these conversations about poverty reduction, a lot of things about how poverty is not reducing in Canada or in Manitoba. Mm-hmm. And I want to know who's doing who's doing good things. Right. Well, we often look to the Nordic countries for inspiration about what, you know, national and provincial, subnational governments can do to really address poverty. And, you know, if anybody's done any traveling to different uh, countries, sometimes you don't see as much evidence of poverty, which is very tragic here in Canada. And so what those countries do well is have a very strong social welfare state. So uh, that's income assistance, that's strong social policies like childcare care, housing, training, along with good public health like mental health addiction support, other health care is really important so that people don't fall through the cracks and end up in situations where they really have to struggle just to survive, which is really sadly Mm -hmm. the case for a lot of people here in in Canada. And so is there an example of something, of a program or a policy or an initiative in any of these Nordic countries? Well, I mean, I'm speaking about the Nordic countries broadly because they have this approach that's been studied of, you know, I would say a strong childcare system along with parental leaves um, so that people can move in and out of paid work is is a really good example of something I'm aware of in those countries. I mean, here we have really uh, small examples that are helping people. For example, in Lord Selkirk Park, mm-hmm. there's a child care program that's based on an abecedarian model that's likened to, you know, putting university at early learning stages so mm-hmm. kids get wraparound supports and they have a good solid investment in their early years and they've found that uh, they haven't had any child apprehensions where that area has a larger rate of child apprehensions. And, you know, child poverty is actually family poverty, and um, especially with people who have gone through trauma and Indigenous people here with intergenerational effects of colonization. So we need to invest in order to address these things and support young people to break this cycle of poverty. And so that's an example locally of one that could be scaled up to really have a much bigger impact than it's already having. Putting that back to sort of uh, the benefits of child care, Mm-hmm. So I know that's um, you had helped write a document uh, that was through Make Poverty History Manitoba about what potentially municipal governments can do um, to help with poverty reduction. And one of those recommendations was with early learning and child care. Mm-hmm. Um, can you explain a bit more about some of those really key benefits of having a good, strong early learning and child care program for, for our kids? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was on the committee for the Winnipeg Without Poverty Plan. Um, I was actually on parental leave myself when that was being written. <laughs> um, well, there's really solid research that shows, you know, children's brains are being are developed. They're 85% developed by the time they're four years old. So 
early learning, you know, we need to break the stigma that you're just babysitting kids. Um, people are trained to be early childhood educators, and um, it can really help with child development so that when they go into kindergarten, they're ready to learn, and kids who've been through good quality uh, early learning experiences are better uh, set up to do well once they hit elementary school. We also know that for parents who need to go for training, you know, work for pay, you need childcare. It's just, it just seems logical. And it's 2018. I think we're getting over this moralizing about who should stay home to take care of the kids. It's an economic fact that um, you know most families are both parents are working or at least one person's working to some degree, and it's very hard to stay home with the kids, and there's um, 16,000 people on the wait list. That's actually gone up by 4,000. It was 12,000 uh, two years ago. So there's a massive wait list for child care. Our national office did a report on child care deserts, which is where there's not enough spaces for, for kids, and Manitoba was the 10th out of all the provinces and territories in terms of having a lack of childcare. There's more in Winnipeg, and as you move out to more rural areas and smaller towns, um, there's about uh, only 20% coverage for the child population for childcare. So so I feel really passionate about childcare. Um, I've done research on it before I had a son, and now I have a son, and we're hoping to get childcare um, when he's two, actually, and we're just uh, figuring out right now until he's two. Um, so yeah, for so anyone, not yeah, yeah, and and I'm you know a person who's got has uh, uh, I'm working and you know mm-hmm. I, I'm not uh, struggling uh, you know to any extent compared to what other folks would be going through. I mean, I think there, people need to know that even if you're on a low income subsidy, parents are still in Manitoba expected to pay two dollars a day. And uh, for child care, for child care, yeah. So if even if your income's like twelve thousand dollars a year, you're still expected to pay two dollars a day, mm-hmm. and that subsidized rate is not indexed to inflation, which is something we might talk about again—a trick governments do. And so less and less people are eligible for the subsidy because they haven't increased the benchmark for people to be eligible. So it's just not really um, working for that subsidy. So we need to revamp the whole system here in Manitoba. There's certainly things people government could do right now, but there was a commission for early learning that was done two years ago that had a whole plan of how we could move to universal child care in Manitoba, and there's been no action on that, unfortunately. Mm. So going back to the Lord Selkirk Park example, how can we take that model if in that community and expand it to other parts of the city or province? Well, it's about political will. So, you know, we do research and we document the evidence and we publish research and we work with coalitions like the Child Care Coalition of Manitoba, which is a group working to advance universal public child care in Manitoba. And, you know, they meet with politicians uh, throughout the cycle and then right around elections and try to get commitments on this. So, you know, that one is, is uh, publicly funded and also through fundraising. But parents are super busy. It's really hard to do fundraising. We shouldn't have to fundraise. You know, they say the army doesn't have to hold a bake sale. Um, so why would parents need to be fundraising for their own childcare? It's you know, we have public education starting at age five. It just needs to start, uh, you know, at age 
one. Of course, it's a choice, you know, if people are able to stay home and take care of their kids, you know, that's great. Um, but it needs to be there as an option for people um, because there's such a demand for it. Mm-hmm. So I'm kind of curious to know, since you're talking about these uh, childcare deserts, mm-hmm. if a family is in a situation where they can't, A, affordability of, of childcare is, is, is high, mm-hmm. there isn't many opportunities for space or accessibility, what, what do these families do? Mm-hmm. Where do they turn if they if they can't get that child care? Well, grandparents are often, um, you know, a resource. And if they're able um, to do that, then then that's great. Um, but some grandparents are, you know, might, their health might not be in that state to be able to take care of a toddler mm-hmm. or, you know, they're not living in the same city as their kids. So they're not available. Um, family home child care centers. I know people who use those. Um, So those are where a provider operates out of their home. Um, But, you know, Susan Prentice, who's a sociologist at the University of Manitoba, wrote a very good paper on the challenges with family home child care. You only need to have 40 hours of training to open a center. Um, or not a center, it's just out of your home. And so the quality can be variable. The turnover is fairly high because people might do this while they have their own kids at home with them, but then it's actually kind of hard to be working alone with however many young children every day for years and years. So they open and close, and they're actually on the decline. So so that's, she you know, she concludes based on the research that that's not a sustainable model. We need, you know, uh, to build it a attached to schools, build childcare centers attached to schools, and look at areas of need in the city um, so that parents don't have to drive, you know, across town if they have a car, which, you know, some parents don't have a car, just to, to find childcare for their, for their mm-hmm. kids. You mentioned a bit about, touched upon political will. Mm-hmm. So I want to get into uh, sort of the Manitoba government and their almost lack thereof a poverty reduction plan. Mm-hmm. So can you kind of explain where our provincial government is at in terms of poverty reduction strategies? Well, there is poverty reduction legislation that was actually the community advocated for for many years. I can remember back in 2004. Our office published The View From Here, which is a community-based report calling on legislation and um, what the community would like to see in a strategy. And actually, that was in 2009, a week before the government announced they're going to do this legislation and have the all-aboard strategy. So, you know, community efforts really helped push the government for action back then. And then uh, we updated that View From Here report in 2015. All-aboard is still on the books. The legislation says you have to have a strategy, but that strategy mm-hmm. has to be updated every five years. And so it was due to be updated in 2016 when the Progressive Conservative government was elected back in 2016. They said, we are going to update this strategy within a year. That was in the uh, budget papers. And, you know, it's two years later and they still haven't released their strategy. Mm -hmm. They said it's coming, um, but they're actually in violation of the legislation technically, but there's no repercussions, unfortunately, Mm -hmm. for that. So, um, you know, all aboard is on the website, but it says, uh, you know, watch for our new poverty reduction strategy, which is forthcoming. So, you know, I'm on the steering committee of Make Poverty History Manitoba. We haven't heard when it's coming. We heard, oh, we wanted to wait for the federal strategy to see how it might impact Manitoba. Um, But that was released in August, and here we are, October, and we still don't know when it's coming. Mm. So I want to kind of talk about those those poverty reduction strategies a bit Mm -hmm. and break them down because, like you say, it's legislation. When that all-aboard strategy came out, was there really any tangible 
uh, progress made on poverty reduction? Well, I think there was pockets of improvement. The strategy gives us a place to look to and we say, you know, you need a roadmap in order to get to your destination. And unless government has a roadmap, then um, they're not they're going to be doing ad hoc things that won't be coordinated. And poverty is complicated. It's, you know, different parts of the population experience it for different reasons, some for long periods of time, some for short periods of time. And, you know, we're going to go into that. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, anti-poverty uh, researchers and activists talk about the need for a strategy because we need government to have a plan. The All Aboard, you know, was critiqued for not exactly being a strategy. It was more of a collection of what the government is doing. So what what the anti-poverty community has done, which is the federal plan has, which is mm-hmm. outcome measures saying we want to bring down poverty rates. And the federal one is 20 percent. 20 percent in two years. Yeah. Mm-hmm. By, by 2020. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is, you know, that's the kind of measure that the anti-poverty community was looking for, uh, like as, in terms of a target and a timeline. Yeah, I guess it's good to have, you know, we want a strategy, but it needs to be a good comprehensive strategy that actually puts resources behind the words on the page. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where the tricky part is in this era of neoliberalism and austerity here in Manitoba. Um, there's more um, value being placed on balancing the budget than really helping vulnerable people improve their mm-hmm. circumstances. What would you like to see on a new poverty reduction strategy or a plan or strategy? Well, here in Manitoba, you know, we have the view from here which is the community-based poverty reduction strategy that has 50 recommendations in 13 different areas. Mm-hmm. So it is, um, no, sorry, nine different areas. It is comprehensive. So, I, you know, out of that, we had a consultation with Make Poverty History where we put all of these up on the wall. We had a facilitator. And we prioritized six. Um, so the six are, you know, housing, so increasing the number of social housing units, um, which were done under the previous government. They built 1,500 social and 1,500 affordable housing units. Also, they introduced rent assists, which was a shelter benefit. So those were uh, real achievements, both for the community, because that's what we were asking for, and that government, um, you know, implemented them. But all the social housing that's been built recently has just been from those previous agreements. This current provincial government hasn't done anything new. Um, mental health, more community-based mental health and addiction supports, because we're hearing a lot about that with the meth crisis, is there's really just uh, a lot of gaps and people can't get the support they need when they need it. Um, Childcare, you know, eliminating the wait kit list for childcare. I talked about housing. Um, Income assistance, which is welfare, which is a hard one in that governments don't talk about that, but Governments have actually taken a holiday from increasing social assistance rates to inflation. So they're actually getting a break on that because the rates aren't indexed to inflation. Rent assist is for a shelter, so that's a good chunk of people's budgets that's now set out from uh, welfare. So what Make Poverty History has been calling for is a livable basic needs benefit that's also indexed to the cost of living that would actually lift people out of poverty and that is set outside of the um, welfare system, which is a step towards a basic income is what we've been calling it. So getting back to child poverty in a sense, mm-hmm. um, so we talked a bit about child care and the importance of that. I've heard another recommendation is uh, about recreation. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a bit about how recreation correlates to, to child poverty? Mm-hmm. 
Well, there's some really great community-based programs in the inner city of Winnipeg here that are available to kids, young people, after school, because there's that time period, you know, between when school ends and when, you know, it's bedtime where kids need something to do and it's going to be a hard time for parents too. So that's a good time of day. And there's some really great, you know, right uh, close to here, there's Rossbrook House or, uh, you know, Spence Neighborhood Association, and there's lots of good Indigenous organizations doing that work. It helps kids, you know, have not just something to do, but build a community, have positive self-esteem, and uh, gives parents a break because, you know, they know their kids in a safe place. And it's also good for child development um, as well. So unfortunately, the city cut the recreation budget we found by $4.5 million last year. It's not very well known. No, the city needed to balance the budget. The city can't run a deficit. So, you know, they had to do some work and that's one of the decisions they made mm-hmm. you know unfortunately the police budget keeps going up it used to be one out of every five dollars spent in the city of winnipeg was spent on policing back in 2001 now it's one out of every three dollars mm-hmm. um that are you know tax money goes to the police but we know the police are just dealing with emergencies they're not getting at the root causes of crime and that is related to poverty and you know, particularly the previous uh, police chief, Clunas, would talk about crime prevention through social development. And that is something that the police can't do. So we need recreation to do that social development, to have a good, safe place for kids to go, support them so that they have options to go in a good way rather than Mm -hmm. having very little choice but to perhaps get uh, connected with a gang. So we've touched briefly upon provincial poverty reduction Mm -hmm. strategies. The federal, which... I guess in its sense is pretty broad, I would say. I know that they had suggested or they're working towards reducing the poverty rate by 20% in Mm. two years, by 2020. Is that achievable? Well, the federal government had a couple parts of that plan that they're talking up a lot, which is the Canada Child Benefit, Mm -hmm. which is um, a good thing. Um, it's uh, more money than the previous Canada Child Tax Benefit. And break uh, that down families. a little bit. <laughs> well, I understand I'm, all of that financial stuff sometimes right. goes over my head. Yeah, well, you know, it's a transfer of cash directly to people with kids based on income. So, you know, families can get, I think it's four or $500 a month for lower income families, um, all the way up to, I think, if parents earn something like eighty or $90,000 a year. And that's to cover the costs associated with raising children. You know, Campaign 2000 has critiqued it because it's not a child poverty tool. It's So even if you're getting the Canada Child Benefit and you have one or two kids you're, or however many kids, you're still below the poverty line for parents. And so they argue that that benefit needs to be brought up so that these parents are not below the poverty line. Um, and that's only till age 18, correct, for, yeah. for kids? So once 18 hits they're cut off of that benefit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you and I were at a basic income forum where a woman talked mm-hmm. about that and she was very concerned that her child turned 18 next month and she would have 400 bucks less um, from that benefit and then another one she was getting. And, you know, I really felt for her. So it's not like once a kid or a young person um, is 18 that they necessarily suddenly leave home mm-hmm. or can really get a job mm-hmm. either. So, yeah, that's... Um, yeah, that's something that should be looked at for how that can be uh, addressed so it works for parents. Mm. And so that plan also indicated that in order for it to work, 
there needed to be cooperation from all levels of governments. That included provincial, federal, and municipal. Mm-hmm. I kind of want to touch on that municipal uh, poverty reduction action plan. Mm-hmm. Can you touch on a few core things that the city could do in order to help reduce poverty in, in their communities? What comes to mind is transit. And the city was uh, had the 50-50 funding agreement with the province cut unilaterally. The province said, we're not going to be funding you as much as we were on transit. And so the city, unfortunately, made the decision to increase transit rates by 25%, which, you know, we heard in the community has a huge impact because people who are really pinched for money, you know, have to make hard decisions. Do they... Uh, not eat that day so that they can afford bus fare, which for a round trip is now basically six bucks. Or um, people are walking or just not going places, which is very isolating as well. So um, the city could definitely do things to bring down transit rates and a low-income bus pass. I think the low-income bus pass has been talked a lot, and I think it's really good, and we should um, look at that. But how it's designed is really important. you know, people have said, well, it's about half the rate of a normal bus pass, so that would be about $40. Um, but still, $40 for people is a lot of money still. How do you get it? I mean, really, people who are on social assistance should just get a free bus pass so they don't have transportation as a barrier. And also, people who are, you know, the whole issue with handy transit is a whole other area that people with disabilities can't get handy transit when they need it and they can only get it for certain you know medical appointments and they have to wait and make spend their whole day basically going to one appointment Um, so that needs to be that's something else the city could do and we're doing the state of the inner city report which will be launched in december about transit and transit equity and transit poverty because sometimes planners think of transit as how do we get people out of their cars into public transit which is one way of looking at it and that's how if you just design your system for that then you're forgetting about the people who are transit reliant which are the people who have no choice but to take the bus or if they can they walk and then people use taxis for big grocery shops and things like Mm -hmm. that so which is very expensive yeah yeah Yeah. so just looking at recommendations of how the city could improve transit equity and transportation equity here again there was something about that municipal plan that suggested that um, the city could do something about child care and early uh, child learning Mm -hmm. what what can the city do about that i think there was something that talked about opening up more buildings for that like what Mm -hmm. on a a municipal level can be done to to help with child care spots and affordability accessibility quality all of that stuff yeah child care is mainly the responsibility of provincial governments but there are tools municipalities have for example with buildings they can you know when building a new building partner with the province to have child care connected with that there's zoning and bylaw work that the city can do to make it favorable to in you know support the development of more child care uh, centers and they could also prioritize that in their work because you know for a healthy city people need to be able to have child care to, to you know, as, as we discussed previously. Mm-hmm. I'm curious to know what the role of the Winnipeg Reduction Council is. Mm-hmm. So explain a bit about what that council does. It's at City Hall. Mm-hmm. And if what they're doing is working. Yeah, the Winnipeg Poverty Reduction Council was created. And it's interesting. There's a fellow who's on the steering committee for Make Poverty History Manitoba who's been doing anti-poverty work for decades. And He explained that it was actually the community wanted the city to have a high-level committee that reported to executive policy committee. 
and they wanted community representation and they wanted to the city for years people have wanted the city to do more on poverty the way it was structured um, was based on this approach through vibrant communities in tamarack um, which is a group that's national and so they uh, work through U- the united ways across canada and that's how um the poverty reduction strategy was set up here where it's actually housed out of the united way winnipeg funded by the city and the province um, I think partially the United Way as well. And so they've taken this approach where they look for gaps because they don't, you know, and they've done some good work. Um, they had a focus on youth programming and Homelessness Winnipeg came out of their efforts. And also now their focus is on Indigenous youth employment. Um, so, you know, those are all very good efforts and they bring, you know, community and business, you know, United Way is around the table, as well as government representatives. But they're not comprehensive in their approach. They're kind of focusing on a very important issue at a time. And they don't uh, make decisions like a whole city government would make. And so it's not the same as a comprehensive poverty reduction strategy for the city of Winnipeg. Have you seen there be a change in poverty? in recent years? Is it more urgent? Well, I think that would be an interesting topic for a town hall with people who've got the experience of, you know, what it's like to live in poverty in Winnipeg. I mean, I speaking from, you know, a research and policy uh, perspective, there is a persistent problem in Manitoba of, uh, you know, Indigenous people are overrepresented amongst those who are low income. Our national office did a report on this on reserve um, poverty rates in Manitoba are 76% of, of children on reserve are uh, low income and 39% in urban uh, settings, and that's the highest in the country. So, you know, that is a result of the residential schools, of colonization, and so we really need to take truth and reconciliation very seriously and put the resources behind uh, that work and work with the Indigenous community on, you know, supporting their priorities. I mean, I think it's become further entrenched in some ways because for other populations, it's very hard to get out. Uh, We see kind of the persistent levels of poverty amongst single adults, for example, and people with disabilities. You know, people with kids did get the improvement with the Canada Child Benefit, although it's still very hard for them to make ends meet, as we've heard. Well, thank you very much, Molly, for joining me. Thanks for having me. Thanks again to Molly for joining me on this episode. It was a pleasure to have the opportunity to speak with her. If you'd like to know more about the reports that we talked about on this episode, please visit my website at belowtheline.ca. You'll find all of those reports under the news section. In the meantime, please follow me on Twitter at below the line underscore MB. I would love to hear your thoughts on this episode. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.